Second Peter chapter number 2, I was thinking as Brother Ralph was leading us and I feel like traveling on, how appropriate that song is for the message this evening. Because we find in the book of Second Peter chapter number 2 a timeless truth concerning strangers and pilgrims in this world. Do you know when Christ saves a man, He changes a man. And uh, He doesn't just uh, change His, uh, you know, His standing, He changes His citizenship. And uh, he doesn't just change his uh, character, but he changes his classification. We become a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things ought to be passed away. And I believe to some extent for everybody that truly gets born again, that old things will be passed away. The Bible teaches that. It doesn't say, behold, all things should become new. It says all things become new. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become New. And I think there's no question that to some extent or another, we all become new creatures in Jesus Christ. I believe in the new birth, and I believe in the new creation that takes place when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our heart and in our life. And I believe that tonight, here in Second Peter chapter number 2, verse 9 through 12, I believe we have some truths about this that I want us to look at that I believe will help us. It says in verse number 9, "...but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy. Somebody should say amen right here. It says, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'd ask that you give me the unction and power that I need tonight, Lord, and I do need it. And I pray, Father, that you'd make this word real in our hearts and lives. We know that your word is alive. We know that it is a living, powerful word. And we know that though it never changes, that it always changes us when we're confronted with it. And so I pray tonight, Lord, that your holy, inspired, inerrant word would speak to our hearts, produce not only the challenge, but the change that's needed for our daily walks. Father, we love you, and we thank you for loving us, and we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I want us to read again verse number uh, 11, where Peter writing says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Peter classifies the believers in Christ as strangers and pilgrims. Now, those words are words that uh, are somewhat familiar to us, but I believe it's important we understand what's being implied by this. Now, we know what the word stranger means. We use it all the time of someone that we're not familiar with, someone that is out of place, someone that does not belong where they were at. But what about the word pilgrim? Now, if you're like me, you grew up in school learning about what we call the pilgrims, uh, those people that journeyed to the new world and found refuge. And that's kind of what we think of when we think of a pilgrim. We think of a man in tall white socks with a hat with a buckle on it and wooden shoes, and that's, that's what we're familiar with. But actually, this word pilgrim denotes anyone 
that is on a journey that will either lead to their home or circumnavigate back to their home. They are journeying to a place. They are sojourning is the Bible word that is used. They are traveling through this world. And I, when we sang that song, I feel like traveling on. I, it just spoke to my heart to think about really the situation that we're all in. Do you realize if you've been saved that this world is no longer your home? A change has taken place in you. And I've got this title tonight that's stuck in my mind, Truths for Travelers. And I want to preach to you for a few moments upon this. Now, by way of introduction, I want to think about some things that these names, strangers and pilgrims, what they tell us. And as I thought about these words, I thought that one of the first things that it tells us is about our heritage. You see, when you tell someone that they are a stranger, you are implying that they do not belong where they are at at the present time. And that took place for you and I when we got saved. We're no longer like this world. We can't be like this world. I think there's a lot of discouraged and downtrodden Christians in this day that we live in because really they're not of this world, but they're trying to live like they are. They're trying to stay happy in the same pig slop that God saved them out of. They think they can walk like the world and look like the world and act like the world and talk like the world and that they're going to have a peace and a joy in their souls. And I'm here to tell you tonight that when you got saved, that all changed for you. You're no longer what you used to be. Your heritage was changed when you got saved. Uh, Whenever Christ was speaking to the Pharisees, He said that ye are of your father, the devil. That was your heritage when you were lost. You were a child of the devil, a child of Satan. You did not know but how to do wrong. I think one of the greatest confusions that exists in this world is this notion that a man becomes a Christian by acting like a Christian. And you have this ideology that permeates all of society today. When you ask someone, are you a Christian? The first thing they'll say is, well, I go to church. Well, that doesn't make you a Christian. That doesn't mean that you're a Christian just because you go to church. Lots of people go to church who don't know Christ. Well, you say, are you a Christian? And they'll say, well, I've been baptized. Well, that doesn't make you a Christian. What they're saying is, by my good works, hopefully I, I have attained the status of being a Christian. No, if you've never been saved or what the Bible calls being born again, Christ told Nicodemus, who was a very religious man, very upright man, a very righteous man according to the world's eyes, he said, Nicodemus, you must be born Again, he said, Nicodemus, the problem isn't what you're doing right now. The problem is you started out wrong. You was born a sinner in this world, just like everyone was born a sinner. Uh, You were born wrong the first time, so you have to be born again to be just and to be right with God. And so when we speak of a stranger, we're speaking of someone's heritage, that they're not from this place. But I think not only of their heritage, uh, but as it relates to you and I, we're speaking of someone's history when we speak of them as a pilgrim. Now, you may say, wait a minute, preacher, we just talked about that. Heritage and history are the same thing. No, not necessarily. Heritage has to do uh, with the history of your ancestry. But when we use the word history, we could also be speaking of a personal history. You see, you know what I see from the Word of God? If I was born a child of the devil... If I was born a product of this world, born into sin, right at home in the slop and the dirt and the filth of this world, but now something has changed, it tells me that something happened in my life. You see, a pilgrim isn't a pilgrim unless unless he left a place at one time. That's what a pilgrim is, somebody that's journeying. And so it tells me if I'm a pilgrim that I've left somewhere. 
When I got saved, I left being at home in the world. I left sin being comfortable and convenient to me. You see, now that I live, I still sin, and I'm still a sinner. But now when I sin, the Holy Spirit of God bears witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. And you know what He tells me when I sin? He tells me, you know better than that. You've been saved. The Word of God has made plain to you what sin is, and you're wrong. When I was lost and undone, just like when you were lost and undone, sin didn't bother me. But there was a problem. I left that state that I was in. Or maybe I could say this. I was picked up out of that state that I was in. It tells me that a change has took place in my history. But a pilgrim implies a third thing. It implies not only their heritage and their history, but that there's a home somewhere that they're headed to. You see, a pilgrim, like I said, it's either someone that is journeying home or someone whose journeys will circumnavigate to take them home to a place that is precious, to a place that is comfortable. And can I say that, thank the good Lord in heaven, that this world is not the end point. It's not the final stop on the tracks for you or I. If we've been saved, our home is with God. Now, if the Lord should take me out of this world before He returns, uh, I'll go to heaven. And you know what that'll mean? I'm with God. If the Lord decides that He is going to rapture me out of this world, I will be caught up together with Him in the air, and I'll go to heaven while the tribulation period is taking place. And guess what? I'll be at home. You know why? Because I'll be with God. But the Bible teaches that one day the Lord's going to set up an earthly kingdom. That's what the Bible says. Don't let it make you nervous. That's what the Bible teaches. A kingdom for a thousand years, and He's going to reign on this earth. Revelation chapter number 20 teaches us that. But you know what? Even though I won't be in heaven, I'll be here. I'll still be home. You know why? Because I'll still be with God. The fact is, being with God is being home, and it tells me that I'm headed to be with the Lord. So I think about these words that Peter uses, and they're important words. And as I read this passage, I see three truths that I want to give to you very quickly. Peter speaks, first off, of the truth of our past situation. Look again with me in verse number 9. Look what the Bible says. It says that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now this is saying you were something, but now you're something different. Or as the Word of God says so often, such were some of you. Peter says, I want you to look backwards in your mind and I want you to think about where you were at when God found you. I want you to think about the history of your life, the state that you were in when God found you. And I would say that first off we see in this passage that you and I, we have a dark past. Isn't that what it said? Called you out of what? Out of darkness. Do you know sin is just that? Sin is darkness. Uh, You know, sin blinds the spiritual eye. That's what the Bible says about those that are lost, that they have been, their eyes have been blinded from the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't it something when you think back about the way you thought before you saved? Do you remember a time when you were scared of religion? When you were scared of God? Do you remember a time when you were scared that if you got saved, the Lord is going to take all your joy away and make you one of them people that gets up and goes to church on Sunday? Do you remember how Satan blinded you to those truths? Do you remember what it was like a time in your life when you thought having a good time was crawling into a bottle? Do you remember what it was like in your life when you thought that having a good time was waking up beside a different person every day? Aren't you thankful that God shined a light on our eyes? Aren't you thankful that God made us realize that that life that the world tries to paint up, that the world tries to show forth, is not as bright, not as glittering, and not as wonderful as they try to make it out to be? Aren't you thankful He brought us out of that darkness? 
It always amazes me when you watch TV. And I'm about to the place now, I don't watch just regular TV. You know, I watch stuff on the computer or something like that. But I just, I, commercials have just about ruined me. How many of you remember when they told you if you paid for cable, you'd never have to watch another commercial? You remember that? bunch of liars is what they are. But you can watch these commercials on the TV, and you can watch the beer commercials. And, you know, they've got the young pretty girls wearing barely nothing. they got the young guys that they're all chiseled and cut. And by the way, you show me anyone after drinking beer for 10, 15 years, it looks like them fellas, amen? But let me tell you something. They don't show you the broken home. They don't show you the bruises without reason, as the book of Proverbs talks about. They don't show you the heartache and the headache. They don't show you the, the turmoil and the tragedy of it all. They're trying to paint it up. And can I say that I'm ashamed of my generation that they have bought this so hook, line, and sinker. Listen, I know that liquor is not a new problem. I understand that it's something that's been around for a long time. But can I say to you that, that liquor is still sin, that alcohol is still wrong, that the Bible says uh, that you're a fool if you're deceived by it. That's what the Bible says. Say, preacher, I don't agree with that. Well, take it up with the Lord. That's what the Bible says. And some will say, well, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Well, I don't know a single one of them people that ever takes a little wine for their stomach's sake. Do you? Uh, you know, by the way, most of us, this is allergy season. I don't know why the Lord has me preach what I preach sometimes, but I'm going to do it anyway. You know, it's allergy season. There's been a lot of you that's taken a little quote-unquote wine for your stomach's sake. There's been a lot of you that have taken something to help you get through it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, with legal, rightfully used prescriptions. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, that's what Paul was talking about when he said, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. He was saying medicinally. He was talking about using it in a medicinal sense. But this crowd that tries to use that to justify social drinking, that ain't anywhere close to social drinking. But we have taken drinking and made it a different kind of sin than anything else. Isn't it funny how you never hear, hey, I know you've heard it, but I need to hear it again, so I bet you do too. Uh, you never hear anybody use any other kind of sin the way they talk about drinking, do you? You never hear anybody say, well, I just murder people socially. Isn't that right? You never hear anybody say, well, I, you know, I don't murder people all the time. I hardly ever murder anybody before 6 o'clock at night. I might sit down and eat a good meal and murder somebody. But for some reason, we've done it with drink. And I'll tell you why we've done it with drink, because it appeals to our flesh. And we have allowed the Lord to blind our eyes into believing that it's harmless, when the fact is the Bible condemns it over and over and over and over again. We ought to just take God at His Word, don't you think? I mean, isn't it sad that some people would be, would be so... And, you know, by the way, social drinkers always claim that they've really got their head of the game on it. They always say, well, I could just lay it down at any time. Then how little do you think your Savior, that even if you don't think it's wrong, you'd take the risk of hurting Him to do something that you claim you can lay down at any time? I mean, don't that say something about our love of God? I mean, if there's something that, that there's even a question about, and we're willing to hurt the Savior, we're willing to displease Him, we're willing to bring shame upon Him over something that we can just lay down at any time, that ain't nothing but a condemnation of how little love we have of God. Aren't you glad the Lord saved you out of it, though? Aren't you glad that such were some of you? Not such are some of you, such were some of you. We see that it was a dark past. But I want you to notice this. It says, which were not a people, but are now the people of God. We have a dark past, but we have a despised past. You know what it's saying when it says, we're not a people, but are now the people of God? It was saying there's a time when nobody would have had you. That's what it's saying. There was a time when people, uh, you were not a people because nobody would associate with you. 
Do you remember what it was like to have those friends in the world? They're your friends as long as you had money, as long as you was in a good mood, as long as you go out and party with them and spend time with them. Then all of a sudden, you got born again. They weren't your friends no more. You know, I mean, the friendship that the world claims is not friendship at all. The Bible says that a brother is born for adversity. But most of the time, the friends that the world gives you, the second that things get tough, uh, they're like those friends in a far country for the uh, prodigal son. The second that he ran out of money, they left him laying in the pig slop. That's not friendship. And by the way, you know, any friendships that you have in this world that are not born and based out of eternal communion with God are temporary anyway. I mean, any associations that you might have in this world, if it's not with believers and people of God, it's just temporary anyway. There was a time, and listen to me, the world can paint it up like they've got your back and they're your friend, but you let it come across that you've come into hard times. and They'll drop you quicker than you could even imagine. Which we're not a people. Which were despised, rejected in this world, hated, used and abused and left out in the rain of this world. We have a despised past, but I would say also that we have a deadly past. It says, had not obtained mercy. Now, I want to pause. I mean, we're going, to, we're going to shout for a second on the last half of that, but I want to stop and let you realize something. Before you met Christ at Calvary, oh, you were just one missed heartbeat away from hell. You had not obtained mercy. I mean, I think sometimes we have let this ideology that the world has, which, you know, the ideology of the world is that you, you know, you get to, you get to heaven and the first person you see is St. Peter because for some reason he's the, you know, he operates the garage door or whatever right there at the pearly gates and, and you go to him and before you can get in, they're going to set you a big, a big scale up up there and then they're going to take all your good works and I wonder what good works would even look like, but they'd take them all and lay them on one side and take your bad works and lay them on the other side and uh, see which side out the other one, if you had more good works than bad works, you get to go in. When there ain't a shred of Bible on any of that, any of that, any of that whatsoever. But I think sometimes we've let that permeate into us. And I think this idea, listen, this idea, and I'm all for the providence of God, and I'm all for the sovereign. I believe we have a sovereign God. But I think sometimes it's easy for us to bask in how God found us so much that we forget what kind of peril we were in before He did. I mean, do you realize the Bible says uh, that the condemnation of God abides on us already? We're not waiting. When we're born into this world, we're not waiting to find out how it's going to turn out. If we die without Christ, we're dying and going to hell. Your loved ones, listen, I hope God does give them mercy. I hope they do live long enough. But do you understand that your loved ones and my loved ones that are without Christ, they are just moments away from dying and going to hell. They've not obtained mercy Yet, at least not mercy that saves a man. But aren't you thankful that though we had not obtained mercy, it goes on a little further and says, but now have obtained mercy. Now we're not getting what's coming to us. I hear people gripe all the time, well, I just, I just, God's so unfair. You better thank the Lord every day that He's not fair. If God was fair, He'd put you in a devil's hell quicker than you could even imagine. Stop and think about all the times that you pushed God away in your life. Stop and think about all the times that God knocked on your door and you said, No, Lord, I'm not interested. I want this more than I want you. If God was fair, He would have said, All right, that's what you want, that's what you can have. But I'm thankful God kept knocking on our heart's door. 
I'm thankful He gave us breath to breathe until we could know Christ as our Savior. I'm thankful that after we came to know Christ as His Savior, that His mercies, as the book of Lamentations says, are new every single morning. I'm thankful that though we had not obtained mercy, when we met Christ, we obtained mercy. He speaks of our past situation. But I want you to notice also that Peter speaks of our present standing. Look what it says in verse number 9. What are we now? It says, Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, and a peculiar people. You know, all four of these speak of different aspects of the change that's happened in our life. And I want to say that first off, we see that we are a new creature. It says a chosen generation. A generation is, uh, and you'll hear Mr. Schofield say, and if you read his notes, and sometimes they're right and sometimes they're real wrong, but uh, he will use the terminology that generation is an elastic term. But really, when it's speaking of a chosen generation, it's saying that of all the peoples in the world, we are the people of God. Now, I'm not saying that it's only this uh, chronological generation. But I'm saying this, of all the people groups, of all the people in the entire world, have you ever thought about how blessed you are to have been born into a gospel-preaching country? Have you ever thought about the fact that that God loved you enough to save you, but not only loved you enough to die for your sins, uh, that you were part of just a, a, a select group of people? And listen, I'm not talking about predestination. I'm merely talking about the grace of God, that we are a chosen generation. God has changed us and made us different than the people around us. Now, this has happened because we accepted His free offering that's free to any and all that will come to Him. But think about the magnificent truth of what God's done in our life. We're the people of God, is what the Bible says. We were not a people, but now we're the people of God. That ought to be something. I don't mean carnal pride. I mean proud of the Lord and what He's done in our life. That ought to be something we're proud of. It's funny how we live in a day when people can shame Christians into being ashamed that they're a child of God. But that's the day we live in. I mean, it, there's no telling how many of us, and I'm, I'm including me too, because I'm as guilty as you are, how many of us were proud to be a Christian inside these four church walls. But then we get out into the world, and we're doing everything we can to keep people from knowing that we're a Christian. What are we so ashamed of that God loved us? What are we so ashamed of that God saved us? What are we so ashamed of that the Spirit of God indwells us? I mean, what is it that we're so terribly ashamed of. We're ashamed because we're different. But really, at the end of the day, we should not look at others with spite and we shouldn't look at ourselves with shame. We should look at others with pity and look at ourselves with praise and gratefulness that God chose us through the blood of Calvary. Now, I understand we chose Him too. But, and I'm not going to listen, I'm not going to preach a whole message tonight on sovereignty of God and on why Calvinists are wrong. I could do it if I wanted to, but I'm not going to. But suffice it to say this, that God had a will in the matter. God didn't have to save us to be God, but He chose to save us. Now, we put our faith in Him, and we chose Him, and we could have just as easily not chosen Him. And it was our choice to make, but that doesn't change the fact that He also chose us. The book of Ephesians says we're chosen in Him from the foundation of the world. What did He choose? He chose that when He could have thrown us into hell, instead He'd have mercy and compassion, and He'd save us and make us a new creature in Christ Jesus. We see a new creature spoken of, but we see a new communion spoken of. We're called a royal priesthood. 
Now, the priests in the Old Testament, they had the office of communion. That's what it was. When we say communion, we think of the Lord's Supper. But when I speak of communion, I mean a fellowship, of relationship, of contact, of speaking with someone. The Old Testament priests were, in a sense, uh, the facilitators of the relationship between the nation of Israel and Jehovah. They made it possible. And aren't you thankful today that we don't have to have anybody between us and God except the man Christ Jesus? We are a royal priesthood. We can speak with God. I mean, there was a time when we didn't want to speak to God. But now God has saved us and we can have communion with Him. Have you ever thought about the fact that you have the ear of the most powerful, and you can use whatever term you want to here. I'm going to use the term person because the term being sounds disrespectful but the most powerful person in all of existence, the almighty, thrice holy God of heaven, we have His ear because we're a royal priesthood. It's interesting to me that it says royal. You know there's only one way that you get to be part of royalty. You can't buy in. You have to be born in. When you got born again, you became a part of this priesthood. The priesthood of the believer. You know, that's one of the tenets of being a Baptist or one of the the foundations of the uh, Baptist doctrine is the individual priesthood of the believer. In other words, I don't need anyone to go between me and God. I've got the greatest intercessor that has ever lived. I've got the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And He's the only one that I have to go to to speak with God. I don't have to go sit in a phone booth behind a shade and speak to a man to speak to God. I don't have to go to a statute and pour money or milk or wine or water out to speak to God. Thanks to the blood of Calvary and thanks to the new birth and thanks to the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, I can speak directly to my Lord. And I can speak to Him peacefully and gracefully. And I can speak my needs to Him. We see a new communion spoken of, but we see a new character spoken of. Now, we've talked about a new creature, how that God's changed us. But what does that bring about in our life? Well, you know, the Bible calls us a holy nation. Aren't you thankful that no matter what happens to this nation, we're still part of a holy nation? You know, whether or not you want to say America's a Christian nation or not, that's your business. But I can tell you right now, there's nobody that could say it in all honesty that our nation is a holy nation. We do not in any way image the foundational principles and expectations of God for a nation. But thanks to Calvary, we can walk in a holy way before those that are around us. Let me tell you something. This may seem so oversimplified, but I'm thankful that, that the things that used to satisfy me don't satisfy me today. And I'm thankful that the things that satisfy the world don't satisfy me. Listen, I'm thankful that if my heart's breaking, I don't have to go out and get drunk to find some solace. I'm thankful that if my home was to fall apart, I wouldn't have to go get smoked up or shot up, uh, take some kind of pill to make myself happy. I'm thankful that uh, if I need some fellowship and need some communion, I don't have to find it in a strange bed. I'm thankful that I can be satisfied by the things of God. And I'm thankful that God's given me the Holy Spirit of God to help me walk this walk that He's asked of me to walk. We're now a holy nation. We're a different group of people. Not only because of what's been done on the inside, but you can see it on the outside. I think part of the reason the church has lost so much respect in the world. You know, there's a time when the church was respected. There's a time people wouldn't even curse on church property. Uh, Now, it's not uncommon. Listen, now there's some that will get up and do it from the pulpit. 
There was a time, listen, there was a time when you could leave the church doors unlocked because they might break into the YMCA, they might break into the orphanage, but nobody was going to lay a finger on God's house. But now we live in a day where there's no respect for the house of God. You know, I think part of the reason there's no respect is because the world looks in at us and don't see anything different than what they've got out there. I think part of the reason we have trouble winning people to Christ like we do today is because they think we're selling them the same thing that they've got. And they see it as just us trying to join, get them to join our lodge or club or whatever foolishness it might be. They don't understand that the New Testament church of Jesus Christ is the very power of God manifest in this world. Uh, The organization and the organism through which God reaches lost souls. And they don't see anything different in us, so they don't want anything from us. You know, it might be we could win drunkards to the Lord if they saw that we weren't drunkards. Might be we could listen. It might be we could win prostitutes to the Lord if they saw that our people didn't dress like that too. It, it might be that we could listen. It might be that we could uh, win some of these workaholics to the Lord if they saw that we weren't putting things before the Lord. It could be if we get the Lord straight in our lives or get ourselves straight before Him, if we put Him in His proper place, it could be we'd have a greater influence on this world. We see a different character. We see a new character, but we see a new classification. I like this. The Bible calls us a peculiar people. And this word peculiar is used out of context a whole lot. And I've used it out of context some. I wouldn't necessarily say it's out of context. I'd say we use it according to modern context a lot. And nowadays, if you used to look at someone and say, boy, you're peculiar, they'd probably hit you in the mouth. <laughs> because to us, it means weird or strange. But do you know that the word peculiar actually means something that is rare and highly valued? You know what the Lord says about you and I? He says, you're valuable to me. You mean something to me. You know, there's a reason the Bible uses the language it does. There's a reason the Bible says that we are bought with a price. There's a reason the Bible speaks of us having been redeemed, not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. What God's saying is, I emptied my bank for you. I gave you everything I had. That's how much God loves us. I, you know, I, 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 it's amazing to me. You know, we are, all this, I don't know if this will upset anybody or not. I hope it don't. But we're quickly turning in, religiously, into a communistic state in this country. You say, what is communistic religion? The idea that it's not government, it's government. It's that God is, uh, that government is the God in our lives. And you can go through and you can study the history of communist nations and you can see how one of the first things they did, and you can read about it. Oh my, this, oh, listen, you can read about it in Russia whenever they were turning communists that they said, we've got to do something about all the churches. If we leave the churches around, people are going to seek solace in religion and we'll never be able to oppress them. So you know what they did? They went to all the churches, they bought them out, they ran out the preachers, and they turned them in to social clubs. They knew if they could make church about a social experience, then people would keep coming and find their solace in that social experience, and they wouldn't look for God in any of it. Tell me that's not what you see around you every day. Oh, they still keep God on the sign. They still keep church on the sign. Some of them do. Some of them, you don't know what they are. Some of them, I mean, there's half the time today, you can't tell the difference between a bar and a church looking at the name on the sign. You'll go by, you'll see a church be named like Revolver or something. I don't even know what that means. Or, you know, go and it'll like, you'll go and see a church and it'll be named Modular or something. You don't even know what it means. They're ashamed 
They're trying to get God out of it. They're trying to make it a social experience. Because, you see, if it's a social experience, people will go in, they'll have their fun, and they won't miss God. That's the day that we're living in. But listen to me, God loved us enough. You know, the Bible says about Christ that He loved the church and He gave Himself for it. When God sees you and I, He sees something of value. I don't even know where, where I was trying to preach to when I was preaching. That. Oh, I know now, I'll preach it anyway. I, in communistic states, you know that one of the main things they spend money on is trying to brainwash the people into thinking they're valuable in the state's eyes. Why do you think it is that our government is turning into quote-unquote Santa Claus in the day that we live in? And they'll promise the moon, and they'll promise not only the moon, they'll promise the, your children's moon, and your grandchildren's moon, and your great-grandchildren's moon. And you know how they operate? They operate by telling people, you are so special that we want to give to you. You're so special that uh, we everybody needs to be worried about your feelings, and about your rights, and about your this, about your that. And they try to brainwash people. You know why they have to spend so much time trying to brainwash people into believing that? Because they've taken out the great source of value in the life of the sinner. And that's to show them that God loves them. That God cares. Listen, I don't need... God help us when we need everyone else to pat us on the back when Christ died for us. That ought to be enough. I mean, listen, I love everybody in this room. I really do. But if you, if you turned your back and hated me tomorrow, guess what? Some of you, you'd have to turn your front because you already turned your... <laughs> but if you, if you decided that you hated me tomorrow, listen, Christ would still love me. God would still love me. And I might get down in the dumps and I might complain and I might pour them out, but I'd have no right to because God still loves me. God still loves you. It's easy sometimes to be like, well, nobody cares about me. It's easy like the psalmist cry out and say, no man careth for my soul, but I'm here to tell you there's somebody that loves you. You're a peculiar people. You're valuable to God. God loves you. God cares about you. Our family might forsake us. And listen, the psalmist said, When my mother and my father forsake me, the Lord will take me up. He'll pick me up. When no one else cares about me, the Lord cares about me. Or peculiar people. So we see our present standing. Then I want to give you just this very quickly. I probably won't have time to preach it. We see the truth of our proper service. All right, we've got these truths. We're not what we used to be. We're something new. How do we live in light of it? Look what it says in verse number 11. The Bible says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Let me tell you something. In light of the fact that we're not of this world, in light of the fact that Christ has saved you and me, we ought to devote ourselves to Him. The Lord ought to be the most important thing in our lives. No excuses, no substitutions. We live in a day of excuses. We live in a day where if we can find someone to agree with us that our sin is not bad, we believe that has changed the character and nature of our sin. We live in a day where we believe that if an excuse is good enough for anybody, any one person around us, then we assume it's good enough for the Lord. Let me tell you something, and I say this because I love you. I mean, I really do. Whatever excuses we have, it may fly with those around us. But one of these days, God's going to take a judgment match and strike fire at our life. And we're going to find out then and there whether those excuses were really good enough. I mean, it may be good enough. Our family might put up with it. Our church family might put up with it. People might smile and say, well, it's okay, just because they don't want to take the trouble to be confrontational. 
But the truth of the matter is, whether or not we think it's okay, whether or not the world thinks it's okay, whether or not our church family thinks it's okay, if God says it's wrong, it's still wrong. Nothing less than our best is enough for Him. Not 99% of our best. Not 50% of our best. Nothing but our absolute best and our absolute everything is enough for Him. You say, well, the Lord's awful needy. No, He just wants what He paid for. You see, when He bought you, He bought everything. He bought your sins and was willing to pay for them. So I think He also bought your skills and your talent and your time and everything. When he... And you know what we want to do? We want to say, Lord, you take all the sin and I'm going to keep the rest. That's not what He bought and paid for. You're bought with a price. He paid for everything. He bore your sin. And I believe He's worthy of what He's paid for. I believe we ought to devote ourselves to Him. But look at verse number 9. It says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. Why? Why has God done this? That ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Not only to devote ourselves to Him, but to declare Him. God saved us so we could sing His praises. He saved us. Sing praises about what? Well, that we were in darkness, but now we're in the light. That we were wicked. That we had nothing. That we hadn't obtained mercy. Oh, but now we've obtained mercy. Let me ask you a simple question. I don't want you to answer it out loud or raise hand. I want you to ask yourself this question. When was the last time that you told somebody that you didn't know well what Christ has done for you. I'm not talking about your church family. I'm not talking about your immediate family. I'm talking about when was the last time that you found somebody that would give, give just a few moments time to you and told them what God's done for you. That He saved you. That you were worthless, but you were worth something to Him. That you were a sinner, but now you're sanctified. That you were hell bound, but now you're heaven bound. God saved us. Why? To show forth His praises, to declare Him. But I think not only to declare Him. We'll read verse 12 and be done. Look what it says. It says, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. You say, well, who's the Gentiles, preacher? Well, Peter is writing to the Jews that have been scattered. But this time, uh, it was pretty rare you were going to come across anyone that even knew the name Jesus Christ in the world of Gentiles. And so when Peter's talking about Gentiles, he's talking about unsaved folk in this passage. And he says, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall, look at this, behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. We ought to demonstrate Him. We ought to demonstrate Him. We ought to show others the power of God. And listen, I don't mean by trying to spout off a bunch of gibberish that no one can understand. That's not what I mean when I say the power of God. I, I, I don't mean smacking someone on the head and having them act like they're healed. That's not the power of God. I, I'm not talking about a bunch of foolishness. I'm talking about, listen, <laughs> it's a lot bigger miracle for God to take a drunkard and make him a Christian than it is for him to straighten out uh, crippled legs. It's a lot bigger miracle for God to take someone that was a reprobate and an infidel and put them in the choir, save them by His grace, and change them and give them a life worth living than it is just to open blinded eyes. 
You see, the problem with this crowd that wants, uh, that likes all this sensationalism and this stuff that is, listen to me, that is anti-scriptural. It's not just unscriptural, it's anti-scriptural. The tongues move, oh, I don't have time for all of this. The tongues movement is not only unscriptural, it's anti-scriptural in the way that it operates. If the, even, if, even if the charismatic churches were legitimate, even if what was going on there was legitimate, if the Apostle Paul walked into that mess, he'd start cutting heads. Read what the Bible says about it. He'd start, listen, he'd start sitting women down is what he'd start doing. You say, well, how do you know it's women? If you took women out of the tongues movement, it'd die. It's 99% women in the tongues movement. You say, that's chauvinist. No, that's factual. That's factual. Go to a charismatic church. It's 99% women. You know, the Bible says that women are to keep silence in church. Oh, don't get upset at me. I, somebody turn, did you turn the air conditioner on? It got cold when I said that, but that's still what the Bible says. Still what the Bible says. If you took them out of the tongues movement, it'd die. The Apostle Paul... No, I'm not talking about that when I say the power of God. I'm talking about the ability to save a sinner and change him. I'm talking about the ability to put a home back together that was hanging just threadbare, ready to fall apart. I'm talking about taking someone that was lost and undone and showing them the grace of God. That's the power of God. <laughs> what is the power of God? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Romans 1.16 For it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'm talking about the power of God to change a life. We're not demonstrating the power of God when we live like the world. We're demonstrating the power of the flesh. If we'd start living, hey, we're not even from this place. What are we doing living like we are? We're not even going to stay in this place. What are we doing living like we are? We've been changed. We've been saved. We've been set on a new pathway. We ought to start living like God's done that in our lives, shouldn't we?